going to celebrate how that he rewrites our history. Yeah. That's what we're celebrating right now when we take communion. I shared this week with some of the kids in South Melbourne that I was raised by alcoholics. I was hoping that I could somehow connect with them and how that God came into my life. I was raised in bars and how that he came in, he swept in, even when I was a little girl and he called me. He called me to serve him and he called me to love him. And he continues to rewrite my history. You all know some of our backstory. The people that have a backstory are sometimes more broken, but that gives God a chance to work on yeah. us even more. And so he, I just wanna encourage you as we celebrate this beautiful communion today, that we all have a backstory, we have a history, and he's wiped it clean. And it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop. He keeps wiping it clean as long as we ask him. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take it. And in the same way, he took the cup when they had supped. And he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. This blood is for every one of you and for everyone you know and for everyone everywhere all the time. This is the new covenant. He said, take it, drink it. And when you do this, remember me. Jesus, we thank you for your body and your blood. We thank you, Lord, that we don't even understand or comprehend the fullness of what we just did in these moments that you told us to. And we say to you, Lord, whatever it means, whatever's in it, we want it all, God. Whatever you meant, we want it all. Father, we pray this morning as a congregation, as a family, for those among us who are sick today. Lord, we've got some people that are really fighting illness. We've got some people that are really troubled, having a lot of tough trouble finding your peace, Jesus. Lord, we got people struggling with their finances. This world has beaten up on your people, Lord, but we believe you are above it all, greater than it all. Lord of all, you are our King. So we pray for them. And we ask that you would release your power to heal, your power to change, your power to rewrite histories and to rebuild destinies. We ask that that would happen for our friends who are sick and struggling and broken. God, may we see your hand as we trust your heart. For you are our King, you are our Lord, and we celebrate your amazing love. In your mighty name, amen. Amazing love, oh, yeah. how can it be? 
walking with the Lord since 1974. I didn't always do it well, but I have not turned back. And I got to tell you, I'm still amazed. I'm still amazed. I hope you are. I hope you're still blowing your mind. I hope you're still getting up and finding new mercies every morning. Because he never runs out. And he never gives up. And he never gets old. When Pastor Jeff contacted me a few weeks ago and he was starting into the series and he said, would you, would you be involved in, in, would you be interested in being involved in a series that I'm putting together called Major Truth, Minor Prophets? It's on the minor prophets. And I said, well, being that I am writing a book right now called Hope in a Minor Key on the Minor Prophets, sign me up. And uh, I got lucky, I got my two favorite of these minor prophets. We're going to talk about Obadiah today, and in a few weeks I get to come back and talk about Micah with you. These are, these are passages that have spoken to me for many years. But this is probably, of the minor prophets, my favorite. Obadiah is just one chapter, but it's a story that to me, it talks about everything Diane was talking about before communion. Great reversal. How God turns around and not only rewrites histories, but redictates the ending of the story. And that's what we learn about. There's a lot in Obadiah that makes us hold our breath because like many of the minor prophets, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of God's got to deal with some stuff. But in every one of them, there is a hope that outshines the discipline of God. And in this one, it's just so bright. And if there's anybody under the sound of my voice in the house, in our EFAM, I want to tell you something. There is no part of your story that has to have a period where God can put a comma. And there's always more coming when he's the one issuing it. So Obadiah talks about weakness. And I want to talk to you about it this morning. Weakness. When God shows off. I'm going to read the whole book to you, so kick back and relax. Here we go. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise and let us go to battle against her. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you? Would they not steal only as much as they wanted if grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? 
but how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Eden, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, they will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. In the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brothers in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. This is the, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head just as you drank on my holy hill so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as, the, as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land. As far as Zarephath, the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Zarephath will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to cover the mountain, to govern the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Stand with me for just a moment, if you would. Father, we invite the Holy Spirit who makes the word come to life and helps us to understand and apprehend and embrace it. We invite Holy Spirit to come, speak to our hearts. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the, and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer, open our hearts to your word in Christ's name. Amen. I've now had nearly 62 laps around the sun. I've learned something. I, I think it's a pretty undeniable truth. The most difficult place to live is between the dreaming 
and the coming true. You're not where you were, but you're also not where you're going, and you're stuck in this pregnant pause where it seems that everything is happening is behind the scenes, uh, invisible to your eyes. That time in between is a, is a quiet and still space that can become a very desperate place. If you've ever been there, you know what I mean. None of us ever signs up to go there. We don't. But every one of us will be there perhaps more than once in our lives. That place in between. And let me tell you something. People who are believing God, who believe God for more, maybe they're believing for healing or provision. Maybe they're believing for God to move in the church or in the community or in the nation, but they're believing for something. People who believe spend a lot of time between the parentheses. You know, and the truth is, these seasons of waiting are inevitable. And it's because they are essential. In that season of waiting, in those times in between, God is working in our hearts to create something in us that enables us to carry the next thing he wants to do in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our nation. In those moments, he's working in us. It's not always easy, but we have to live in the kingdom parenthesis before we step into our kingdom place. Does that make sense to you? You see, the truth is, and I've said this from this pulpit before, Destination is where we're going, but destiny is what we become on the way. And so much of our destiny, so much of stepping into why we were made, so much of that is about our obedience between the parentheses, our obedience in the season of waiting. Now, I'm not saying that we do it well. I never sit quietly or sit still in those seasons. I'm always telling God what he should do at that particular moment. You know, we loudly implore God, make my dream come true, while he quietly invites us, be my dream come true. And so those seasons of waiting are inevitable because they are essential. They're periods of stillness where God is working. Now, we just simply cannot afford to separate this from the reality of the word of God. Some people say, well, why do you, why do you talk about this at this particular time in a moment? There's two reasons. One is that void that, that we call the waiting room. That's where Obadiah was when he received this word from God. We're not exactly sure where Obadiah prophesied, at what time he prophesied. If you look at the list that we put up here, we've stuck him up at the beginning because he's, he's early on in some people's thoughts. Some scholars believe that he prophesied sometimes between when the nation of Israel split into two and became Israel and Judah, 
and the times that they were carried off then into exile. Other people believe that it was between when they were carried off into exile and when they came back through redemption. But the fact of the matter is, wherever he prophesied, whatever point in time it was, he was in between. Something had happened, something was coming, and he was in between those two things. And it is precisely there that God gave him a word of hope in the middle of national catastrophe. I love the first line, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says. He saw something. He saw the divine perspective. He heard something, a message from God. He heard God's viewpoint. And what he saw and what he heard was right in the middle of nowhere. Stuck between the parentheses. I asked myself this question. I said, How, when I look at this promise... How does this guy get this word at that moment? How does a prophet see God's plan in a blind spot? How does he hear God's voice in a vacuum? What was it about Obadiah that stationed him in such a stance that he could hear God and see from God's perspective that he could see from above the parenthesis when it seemed nobody else could? What was it about him? I think the secret is found in his name. We say it, Obadiah. But the Hebrew is Obadiah. Obadiah. You get the Yah part? Yahweh. The, the name of God. It was this secret, encrypted, coded name that the Israelites would use when they got into a sentence and they were supposed to say God. It was almost like they went, and they couldn't say it. That's how they would say it. So it was Y-H-W-H. That's how we transliterate it. They couldn't speak his name. That's the last half of his name, Obed-Yah. So what's the Obed part about? In half of the Old Testament, you'll see the translation serve. And in the other half of the times it's used, you'll see the word worship. It combines serving and worship. So Obadiah was a person who always served while he worshiped and he always worshiped while he served. So in that stance as a worshiping servant and a servant worshiper, it was that stance that enabled him to hear from above what could not be seen from below. So Obed-Yah is this man standing in between, but seeing from above and hearing the perspective of God. And in that moment, God tells him about the character and nature of the people who would carry the next great thing that God wanted to do. He drew this vivid distinction in that single chapter between the people God couldn't use and the people who would be his chosen instrument. It's literally, quite literally, Obadiah is the tale of two peoples. I've named them the resistors and the responders. He tells us about these people. He starts by talking about the resistors, and the truth is, and this is a principle I believe that's littered throughout the Bible, 
The higher your investment in the current wineskin, the more you tend to resist new wine that's going to reshape everything. Those were the hearts of the resistors. But he talks about this other group of people. They're the responders. And, And the truth about it, when Obadiah describes them, he describes them as people who have nothing left to lose So they're willing to believe that God can do anything, even though they can't imagine in their minds that thing happening. Can I give you a practical illustration on this July 4th? People who still believe God can send a sweeping awakening to the United States of America and send revival to the church. They're respondents. We're standing on the sidelines looking around us saying we have almost nothing left. But... We still believe God can move. We still believe God can restore this land. That's what I'm talking about. I I call those guys Obadiah people. They're the serving worshipers and the worshiping servers. And they, they don't look, according to his description we'll get into, they don't look like the people who could carry the next great move of God. But God works this great reversal where he takes the people who are on the bottom and because they've been sufficiently broken and have come, become sufficiently surrendered, he puts them on top to lead the next thing that God is doing. Here's why I believe this is so important at this moment in time. Because I believe we're in a moment just like Obadiah was. Right now in our land. We've been through perhaps the toughest year, year and a half I've seen in my 62 years. And in fact, it's the most bizarre thing. I've seen stuff I've never seen happen to the church and to people before. And when we emerge from this imposed cocoon that we've been in, we have the privilege of emerging standing at the very threshold of a period of promise where the kingdom can expand in the earth. So we're coming out a different people, and that's important because a different kind of season demands a different kind of believer. If we come out of this cocoon the same as we were when we went into it, everything that happened there, everything it cost us individually in our families and our nation is wasted. We cannot come out the same. Obadiah talks about that as he says, look, this different season that God's going to bring demands a different people. Church, this is the people of God's time to shine. Nobody likes it better when there's darkness than people who carry light because the light is so clearly seen. And it isn't about our strength. It's about our surrender. Have we been sufficiently broken in the in-between stage? Guys, now is our time. Now is our season. But will we meet this season as resistors or responders? That's the question. And that's what Obadiah addresses. Let's unpack him a little bit and see what he says about living in this space between the dreaming and the coming true. He first starts by talking about the resistant people. These are the people who are too content to be disturbed, okay? 
Uh, he, he preaches against the nation of Eden, Edom. Now, Edom was, a, not, was not a Jewish people. So this is one of the sole prophecies that has as its audience a people not among the people of God. If you look at all the other prophets, they may talk about other nations, but the message is to the people of God. Not Obadiah. He is speaking directly to Edom. So it's, under, it's important we understand the backstory of Eden a bit. Edom come, came about like this. Israel's wife, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was having babies, twins. And the older one, she named Jacob, and the Esau, and the younger one, he named, she named Jacob. Jacob became the nation of Israel. Esau became the nation of Edom. So the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So God prophesies to the mother about these two. And he says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be ripped out or separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. And that's exactly what happened for almost a thousand years. Israel literally dominated Edom. And Edom despised Israel for it. And the Edomites completely adopted the nature of their father, Esau. See, as the father of the nation, Esau sold his birthright birthright and lost his blessing because he did not value correctly what God had given him. And because of that, a sacred birthright was traded for momentary satisfaction. His very significance was sacrificed on the altar of convenience. And Edom literally lived with that compromise in their DNA as a nation. They literally carried it with them. And they acted as a nation exactly like their father Esau had as a person. They they never stood out because they never stood up for anything. Here's the description of what Edom is like all throughout the scripture. Edom would sit up in its cliff dwellings. And it would watch God come and bring discipline on the nation of Israel, trying to get them to become his holy, special, unique people. And as they were being carted off into multiple different defeats, Edom would sweep down at the very end, line up with the winners, and then go in and collect the spoils and abuse the people that were left. That's how they did. Over and over and over again, they were always looking for a convenient time to be scavengers. They were sensual, they were materialistic, compromise was in their DNA. They didn't have the strength in themselves to invade and destroy Israel, so they always tagged on to somebody else. So they could look like winners even though they never fought. They were what I call a vulture culture. They literally would scavenge at the end of every battle. And everything they had in their homes and everything they had in their cities was stolen from the people of God as they swooped in like vultures at the end of every battle. And God was sick and tired of it. It's interesting. If you read your Old Testament, Edom is prophesied about more than any of the nations that surround Israel, more than any of the enemies. Uh, If you look just at the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Amos, Joel, Malachi, all prophesied against Edom. You can even see prophecies against Edom as far back as the Psalms. This was a people that oppressed the people of God, and God was getting his fill of them. 
but nobody prophesied about them like Obadiah. He, he, he's very, very centered on them, and what he says is very harsh. In fact, the first words out of God's mouth through Obadiah is this. See, I will make you, speaking of Edom, I will make you small among the nations. The word means insignificant, irrelevant. I will make you an irrelevancy, and you will be utterly despised. Your, your name will become a curse word out of the mouths of other people. It's crazy, but at the, at the end of his, his prophecy, Obadiah actually says, there will be no survivors from Eden. I want you to hear this. If you read in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but especially in Isaiah, there are these prophecies that literally left me scratching my head as I've read them over the years because God prophesies about a time when Egypt and Assyria, the ultimate enemies that destroyed the, the nation of Israel, would rejoin Israel on the holy mount and worship God. So God prophesied that your worst enemies are even going to be redeemed. But the one nation he could not redeem was Edom. And there's one reason. He said, the pride of your heart has deceived you. This word pride, it, pride is this presumptive self-sufficiency. They had built it up over the years. And he said, it's deceived you. He said, you don't see reality like it is. It's like looking at yourself in a funhouse mirror and you're distorted. He said, you're looking at yourself and you think you're one thing, but you're another. And God said, I can't, I can't work with a people like that. God could not, he did not, and he will not work with a people of pride. In fact, he says to them, Though you fly through the heavens like an eagle and make your nest in the stars, from there I will bring you down. So at the core of their problem is pride. And that's what Obadiah talks about in the majority of what he says to them. And as I, I read it, I was trying to think, how does this relate? How does this help me? I want to be a person who can carry what God's doing. Don't you? I, I want to be a person... He's comfortable inhabiting, working through. I want to be a carrier of his presence and a conduit of his power. And if I'm a proud individual, that's not possible. So as I read this prophecy, I dug out for us some, some I would say, core boasts that pride makes. And some warnings that come out of those boasts. The first boast is this, and this is what Edom said. We're fine where we are. This is verses uh, three and four. We're fine where we are. They were a people who had built for themselves homes 5,000 feet up in the mountains on the edge of the Arabian uh, uh, countries. And they literally lived in clefts in the rock. And they thought they were impregnable. They thought they were untouchable. They literally thought to themselves, we've arrived. Nobody can bother us here. And God said, wait a minute, from there, I'm going to bring you back to earth. Here is, here's the warning for us. God cannot use us to carry his presence if our security and identity are found in anything else besides his person and his presence. They thought they were impregnable. Their whole identity security was set in, in what, they had, what they had done by themselves. Second thing that pride will say is, 
we're good with what we have. This is verses five and five to seven. This is where the, they say to, to God, basically, look, we've got our allies and we've got our wealth. We've built these alliances in the flesh. They're going to protect us in the spirit. We're fine where we are. We, we, we're good with what we have because we have people and we have money. And God says, everything you have, I'm going to take away from you. See, God cannot use us to carry his word. If we find alliances with anyone or anything that holds bigger sway in our hearts than God does. And then pride says, we know everything we should. In the next couple of verses, God talks about destroying the wise men and the knowledge. These were a people that were priding themselves in all that they knew. And they thought literally that they understood it all. They had it all wired. And God said, everything that you're leaning on is knowledge is going to be dust in the wind. I'm going to blow it away. See, God cannot use us to carry his work if we believe that what we know of him from the past is enough to carry us to what we, through what we face in the future. We can never afford to stop plumbing the depths of God. There is always more of him to know. And then pride says this, and this is where he spends a bulk of his time, verses 10 to 16, we don't want to be involved. We don't want to get involved. Pride stands back as they did in an aloof station and says, I I'm not going to mess with that. I'm not getting involved. They literally would stand and watch the people of God be marched away from Israel. And they'd wait till it was all clear and then they'd swoop down and do their thing. And God said, your lack of mercy is going to bring you to shame. See, God cannot use us to carry his work if we allow ourselves to be insulated and isolated from the rub and reality of the brokenness of our lives. We have to be touched by God. So God's next move, the next thing he was telling Obadiah that he wanted to do, could not be carried by a people who did not know they needed him. Edom became a people that God couldn't use because they were completely satisfied with the way things are. Most dangerous place that we can inhabit is a place that says everything's fine as it is. You know what's interesting is when you read all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, God's always warning the nation of Israel about the peoples around them and their gods. Don't take up with their gods because their gods are going to bring you destruction. Over and over again, all the different nations. It's never said once about the people of Edom. You never read about their gods because they didn't have any. They literally felt like they were okay all in themselves. They didn't need God for their satisfaction or their success. They were a completely godless Does that not sound eerily familiar? Let's just flip around. God is being squeezed out of every facet of the culture right now because our culture doesn't believe they need him. God can't use people like that. But thankfully, Obadiah has stopped that. I know you've been waiting for me to get to the hope part I mentioned. 
Obadiah sees another people arising that have been sufficiently humbled and are surrendered to God and willing to do whatever he wants. These were a people that God could use. These were a people who could carry him into the nations. That's the thread of hope that runs not only through Obadiah, but it runs through all of the minor prophets. The minor prophets are literally prophets of hope, not despair. At the very beginning of the COVID outbreak, when I, was, I came off the road from my job, I hadn't traveled in a year and a half, and, and, and I was at home, and I asked God, what do I need to hear? He had me read all of the minor prophets in multiple translations over and over and over again because they are speaking to a time like we are in. And I, I discovered from those Every single one of them, no matter how many harsh words come out of their mouth, there is always a period of hope at the end of the story. And Obadiah is no different. And in fact, it's, it's introduced, the shift happens in his, in his words by what I like to call a divine conjunction. But, you see, when, when God interjects a conjunction into a sentence of history, things change. And he says, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. God draws this contrast between the worthlessness of people who are completely satisfied with how they are and the weightiness of people who have surrendered to him. Guys, we can never forget in the, in the fog of our culture, we can never forget that all of time and all of history in all of the world is about one thing, God will establish his kingdom in the earth. There is no stopping that. That is the message. That is the heart of everything Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so Obadiah shifts to talk about the people who can establish the reign of God in their own spheres of influence the responsive people. These are people who are too disturbed to be content. You know, a true move of God demands a new breed of people. People that have been shaped by the in-between stuff, the pressure of waiting. He says, but on Mount Zion, deliverance will be seen. I love Mount Zion. It's my favorite Old Testament image. It's the peak of the city of Jerusalem, which was called the city of David that he named the city of God. And at the very peak of this is Mount Zion, the holy hill. That's where the temple was ultimately built. But David had a vision into the New Testament and painted the picture in the Old Testament in what he put at the peak of Mount Zion. He stuck a tent there. It's called the Tabernacle of David. We read about prophecy about it last week in Amos. The Tabernacle of David was a big tent with the sides pulled up and the Ark of the Covenant sitting in the middle of it. And everybody that walked to the marketplace could see the glory of God. And there was 24-hour-a-day worship. The Levites in shifts spent all their time worshiping around the Tabernacle of David. The rabbis write in, in a kind of post-history kind of thing that David used to go to his tabernacle and lay down and crawl up under the Ark of the Covenant. 
How do we know that? Look at Psalm 84. Because while he was laying there, he watched birds come and make their nest between the, the angel's wings. So what David did is he broke all the rules of worship and he said, wait a minute, this God that we love is a God who wants to be near and he puts him right in the middle of the city and he gives everybody access to him and that's how people became people, who, people of deliverance. But I'll tell you what that does to you. It makes you a person who always wants more. It's like as these people would walk by the presence of God in their daily life and they would see the tabernacle of David, they would see the ark, and they would say, this God of ours is so big, I want to know more of him. I want to know more. And maybe it's never happened to you, but there are times I'm reading this book and I'll hold it up to God and say, hey, wait, 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 God. You did some stuff in here and I want to see it out here. I know a God who does more than what I'm seeing. I know a God who does more than what I've experienced, and I want it. And that's what the prophet prayed when he said, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them new. People of the presence are people who always understand where we are is not far enough. What we possess isn't near enough. What we know isn't clear enough. How we love, it's not dear enough. When God finds people who are too disturbed to be content, he found his crew. And he can do stuff through them. I wasn't going to share this, but I just, I feel like I'm supposed to. There was a guy, his name was John Wimber who founded the Vineyard uh, group of churches. He got saved out of the Jesus People movement back in the 70s. And he was one of these guys that just read the Bible and took it seriously. So he went to a traditional church and he kept going. And, and, and finally one day he walks up at the end of the church and he looks at the pastor and he goes, hey, pastor, when are we going to do the stuff? Pastor looks at him and goes, what? Well, when are we going to do the stuff? What do you mean the stuff? He goes, you know, the Jesus stuff. That's the kind of person I'm talking about. That's who Obadiah is writing about. People who are just on their edge of the seat believing there's still some Jesus stuff to be seen in our earth. There's still some Jesus stuff he wants to do through us. And here is the major truth from this minor prophet. It happens in our weakness. Our weakness is the backdrop against which God does great things. He shows his strength, and that changes outcomes and shifts atmospheres. It's against the backdrop of our frailty that God does stuff nobody will ever blame on us. I want people to be able to look at my life and see something and go, there ain't no way that boy did that stuff. We should be people exhibiting the greatness of our God. And that's what Ob Obadiah turns to. 
he turns to a people who had been dragged off to some place they had never wanted to go, but they learned some things about God they'd never dreamed they'd learn. And when they came back, they had no interest in being relevant to a culture that was irrelevant to the kingdom. And they came back different people. And I love these descriptions. They're so colorful if you understand the context. Obadiah says, these guys that are coming back, this is, this is verse 17, they're going to bring deliverance to the mountains. The word, the word is an interesting word. It means, it's like refugees who find the, their, their deliverance and go back and get other refugees to bring them to the refuge that they found. He said, they're going to be chain breakers. And they're going to be status shakers. He said, it will be holy here. The word holy at its core isn't about morality. It involves that. But at its core, the word means other, different, distinctive. God is holy because he's completely different than we are. And he said, this place and this people are going to be unique. They're going to be different. They're going to shake up the status quo. And he said, they're going to be risk takers. I love this. The people of Jerusalem are going to take back or possess their inheritance. They're going to reach out and grab what belongs to the kingdom and bring it back home. These were Jews that had been through the fire. It had cost them everything. And God was going to bring them back and they were going to get back what the enemy had stolen. And they were going to be firebrands. He calls them flames. That's the idea of a bonfire. And then he calls them fire, which is the word for the fire-tipped end of a spear. And he said, the people of Esau are going to be stubble, and I'm going to set them aflame with my people. And this is the part, and this is where I'm going to quit. This is the part that blew my mind. Where, Where does God find people It's not where we might think. I love these words. He says, the people from the Negev, that's the desert, are going to take the mountains. They're going to occupy the mountains. In other words, the people that have been through it, they've been in the baking, arid, testing time, they're going to emerge as leaders who lead as servants. And then he says, the people of the foothills, a really interesting Hebrew word, it means the depressed place. People of the foothills are going to send and possess the land of the Philistines. The Philistines was the unconquerable army. You see them pop up over and over and over again. But he said, these people that have been at the lowest place, I'm going to raise them up and they're going to take down, they're going to take down enemies the church has not been able to defeat in years. And then he said, Benjamin, is going to possess Gilead. Benjamin was the youngest tribe. He's the smallest, weakest tribe. It's it's a picture of the next generation. He said, they're going to rise up as a radical generation that takes sides. They're going to go and and they're going to possess Gilead. They're going to possess the land. And then he, he just describes us all. This company of exiles. I love that. This company of exiles. Do you know that's what we are? I grew up singing a song, this world is not our home, I'm just a passing through. We are exiles, we are foreigners and aliens, Paul calls us, in this land. He said, this group of exiles is going to stretch the kingdom to places it's never been. That's the city, Zarephath and Seraphat. 
He said, we're going to take it places it's never been. We're going to see God do things he's never done. And the question that came to me was, is that too dream too big to come true? Is it too great to think about that kind of a reversal where God rewrites the end of the story? Obadiah sums it all up in the last phrase. The kingdom will be the Lord's. What I wanted to do this morning is just encourage you to believe bigger. To hope more. To stand on the rubble of your disappointments and know that God is good, that God is great, and that God is not dead. Father, we thank you that in our weakness you are strong. In our brokenness, in our, in our despair at times, you're doing stuff in us that can make us a people to carry your presence. God, I ask you to awaken our hearts, to open our eyes, to make us prisoners of hope, to never stop believing you and refuse to limit what you can do in us, through us, around us, and beyond us. I ask this in the name of Jesus who did all of those things. Amen. Stand with me. Thanks for being here this morning. I want to bless you as you go. May you go from this place as people who hope, people who dare, people who believe God is not.